Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Education Marketer podcast. I'm Kyle Campbell, founder of Education Marketer, and today's episode comes via the application. I speak with Alison Tercio on how higher ed can use LinkedIn to grow an audience and recruit more students. Let's get on with the show. I was shocked to learn a few months ago how many students use LinkedIn to uh, reinforce their study choices. So you might be surprised to learn that of the social media networks that PhD students use, 75% of them use LinkedIn to inform their study choices. And I think this is probably around finding the ideal supervisor, because naturally, when you're at that level, you you are gra- you move towards the people who can help you in your, your pursuit of that knowledge and that support, don't you, rather than just the institution itself. So you need to make sure your supervisor knows the stuff and it's a one-to-one relationship. So LinkedIn plays a, a big role in that. Similarly, for the master's level students, um, this is based on a, you know, a global survey by a, an organization called Keystone Education Group. 30,000 students surveyed across the world. In the top three choices of platforms for master's students, LinkedIn features alongside uh, Facebook and Instagram as one of the main channels they use to make study choices. So it's no longer this stuffy network full of just general updates about what we're doing in our careers. It's it's a place where people go to make decisions. And, you know, off the back of that, and uh, I don't know when we'll, we'll be releasing um, our, our episode here today, but in in our in our time where we are now, um, just just yesterday, Google's announced massive changes to the way it highlights search results. It's incorporating AI into those search results. So now you go to search and, you know, rather than clicking through to a university website, um, you can have all that content consumed in that search engine results page. Well, most organic, well, most universities priorly focus on organic acquisition, don't they, as their means of acquisition. Well, now that might disappear. So where do you go? You have to move to different channels. Search is just a channel and LinkedIn is, is one of those new channels. So yeah, so that's the two main reasons for me, you know, big changes to organic acquisition and uh, also that students are using LinkedIn to make study choices. This gets in a little bit to the PR, public relations and media relations side, but I also think there's such an opportunity for stories to be told through LinkedIn and other platforms, instead of waiting for the media to pick up on this content, pick up on this story, especially when it comes to professors and sort of the research that they're they're doing, they are experts and we don't need to wait until a publication is ready to tell the world about their research, right? Isn't LinkedIn a great opportunity for that? Oh, 100%. I mean, if you look at most university, university structures in communications, there's a real strong emphasis on, on PR and having strategies to have, uh, to pitch journalists or have journalists find you uh, to tell your story for you. But mm-hmm. yeah, with, with LinkedIn, if you have a consistent strategy and you understand the pillars and the, the topics you want to be known for, there are some fantastic universities taking advantage of that sort of way to get their stories out there. Um, LSE, uh, London School of Economics is one. They have a a great way of using content on LinkedIn. They have a research hub on their website, web-based content, long-form content, very rich media. But they always rethink about how they can repurpose those research stories, those research news pieces for a LinkedIn audience. So you might have a really long-form piece on the website, 
Um, but you go on LinkedIn and you have this really short, snappy video edited for that audience. You've got a nice bit of context around it in the text post. And these things just fly. They do so well. You know, we're looking at 30,000 views, 2,000 reactions, tons of comments. And this is LinkedIn. It's, it's not yeah. Facebook, you know. Um, and I don't think people realize that, that potential. On this year alone, I think um, compared to last year, there's 22% more in-feed updates on LinkedIn, so native publishing um, happening there, and also 75% more um, spontaneous live events happening in LinkedIn. So this place is is bustling, and I think the image it has is very different to, to the reality in that it's in some cases. Well, I, I hope by now everyone listening is starting to see the potential that we have here. So now that we understand that better. How can we as higher ed marketers leverage LinkedIn? What should we be doing? Yeah, I mean, the, the default view people take with this stuff is when we say, what, how does a marketer take advantage? I think our default understanding is that we jump to the, the brand page, right? Yes. And I don't, I don't think that's the greatest opportunity. Um, I think it is an opportunity and there are some good brand pages, but It'd be no surprise to people that branded content brand pages don't get as much reach as individuals on LinkedIn, individual profiles. So the real opportunity for education um, marketers, uh, if they think about their their teams and how they want to raise a profile, their content through, through LinkedIn, is to understand the power of staff advocacy. Um, and in the UK, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. There's a there's a great institution. It's a I think I would call it a challenger institution. It's a fairly new university called UA92. And their um, uh, director of recruitment and admissions is also a LinkedIn influencer. And I know that sounds like such a strange mix, but actually the way she uses this platform, it, it's just wonderful to watch. And it's how we should be thinking about our roles as, as marketers and recruiters in, in 2023. So she posts every day, like me, um, she's got way more followers than me. Um, and she talks about things like challenges for young people in education. She's publishing content that is of interest to potential parents, potential partners. She's also publishing content for uh, young people or young professionals who are early in their career. She's basically personifying what this university wants to be known for. And she's doing it consistently and she's doing it in an accessible way. And it's just great to see because LinkedIn then gives that stuff scale. So before we might have a member of the recruitment team go into a school and do a presentation, or we might do a little bit of printed literature or something like that. But now we have a real influencer on a platform living these things every day. She's making new partnerships from the university. Parents are seeing this. You can't even begin to calculate the impact this personal profile is having. So my understanding if you're in a social team or anything kind of a digital communications team in the uni you need to be finding people like that in your organization um and if they need support or if they need any more support not that um, this person does you want to be looking how you can replicate that uh, at different parts so this is that's a recruitment example you could easily do the same with a um outspoken member of faculty who wants to raise their profile in a certain area. You could do it for any part of the university. We've done this with student ambassadors, haven't we? Um, yes. you know, we're used to publishing on other people's channels. The big opportunity is taking that and applying it to, to staff and their reach. 
Well, what strikes me about the difference here versus what we've done in the past about, you know, putting stuff out over student channels is that what you're talking about in these examples is it's not about the person and it's not promotional in nature, the content. That's what sets this apart. Is that true? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we spend a lot of time in marketing talking about personal brands, i.e. the me, me, me. Um, actually, it's not about brand. It's about category and what you represent. Uh, people say I'm really good at personal branding and I don't, I don't think I am. I, I, that's never my intention. Um, I, I publish for an audience. Uh, I never, I never <laughs> publish about what I'm doing in my day and I, I don't do any yeah. relatable posts. I just don't. Um, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean it, it, that doesn't mean to say it would work for others, but there's, there's real power in LinkedIn and being known for something. And I could start a publishing strategy tomorrow that would probably double the amount of traction my stuff gets by being more personal, posting slightly different content about stuff that's slightly more relatable around its leadership or whatever it is, things that people can immediately jump into. But my posts are sometimes quite, <laughs> Would I say difficult? I don't know that, you know, you have to kind of read through the data and I wouldn't say they're an easy read, uh, but that's okay. And I think that could be the same for any, any area of a university that wants to be known for a topic. If you want to be known for something and be an expert in that area, you need to go into the, into the reads, into the, the deep insight and your audience might grow slower, but those who do attract, they're the right audience and they're a much more engaged audience. So when you see a creator on LinkedIn with like 50,000 followers, um, you know, they've even been doing it for a while, or you might notice that their content is quite undifferentiated versus a micro creator of around 3,000 followers. They tend to be a bit more focused on what they're doing and yeah, their audience turns up to support them when they, when they need that. So if the role of marketers is really to help find those creators and support those creators in your example she had built that platform herself right and yeah. so this university is benefiting how can we help people to start how can we encourage or inspire them as, that this is a great avenue for um, promoting themselves promoting their work but not even really promoting but just providing value and mm -hmm. in doing that you know, that increases your personal brand and the organizational's brand. And by the way, Kyle, that's what I think people think when they're talking about what you're doing, because yeah. you're providing value to the rest of us. We found, find the content. So we're associating you with these topics. And so it has increased your personal brand, even though I can promise you don't talk about yourself. It's not about you, but you have raised your personal profile by doing this work. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. Um, but uh, it, I think if you put your, if you ever put yourself first before an audience, the audience quickly yeah. disappear or you don't, yeah. or you don't get one. <laughs> um, but in terms of first steps, you can help people take, I mean, it's, it's sometimes, I mean, in uh, maybe a good way to look at this. So if in organizations, especially in, in higher res, usually the, the chance to uh, have a, have a promotion is often re resorted down to the idea you have to manage more people, right? You have to take on more responsibility in terms of people management and grow your, your remit that way. Now in higher ed, this doesn't really work. Uh, no, well no, because... it doesn't. I think everyone <laughs> listening will agree to that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think the other solution is to understand the role of the specialists and to help a specialist grow you can help them talk more about their specialism and help other people understand that and raise their profile that way. So maybe in a, diff a different way to help people think about career growth 
is to often the chance of the support of the institution to build their their career that way. So maybe if you do have a specialist in you know, your marketing team who's particularly passionate about peer-to-peer student recruitment or ways you can use TikTok in, in, in interesting, engaging, uh, in interesting, engaging ways, then maybe there's an avenue there rather than, you know, put them on a training course, it's maybe giving them the space and the freedom um, to create content around the practice of what they're doing and growing their career that way. That's, that's one way of doing it. The other way is to work backwards and go, right, the university wants to be known for this. Um, and then looking at the people who are already kind of active on the platform and then with the social media team's expertise and what content works in these, these networks, maybe book or try and get the, uh, some time with them for 30 minutes and just talking about the potential that they could unlock if they did content in a slightly different way. But again, it, it can't be forced. And what I'm not talking about here is, you know, the ones I'm talking about usually in, um, uh, SAS environments, less in, uh, higher education, but the. There's like staff evangelism programs or um, uh, systems you log into to get benefits for reposting company posts and things like that. And that doesn't work. That's not, really yeah, that's doesn't. not what we're talking about. Yeah. No, yeah. no. It, it, it needs to be more of helping the individual, but at the same time, expressing the values, what the university wants to be known for. And if people see it's for development, they're, they're usually quite open to it. But as long as you're not putting words in their mouth, that's where it gets a little bit sticky. You've given us a couple examples early on. Are there any other real life examples that we should follow and look to, to get inspired about this work? I think so. I mean, LinkedIn is very much about build, building audience. And I think that's where the, the longest uh, sort of benefits come from, the longer, longer term benefits come from. Um, but there's also great examples of universities just using the platform quite well in an ad hoc way. Um, the, the one that springs to mind, and there's probably a few other examples like this, but Aston University in the UK seems to understand the, the value of having um, honor, honorary grads with a, a great uh, great remit and reach on themselves. So actually giving, I don't know if it's the same in the in the US, but in the UK, we have honorary degrees. So we give a degree to someone based on their uh, contribution to society yes. and business. Yeah. Yes, we um, have those too. Good, good. Uh, they are they they are very good, and it's it's great to see honorary degrees being given to people who have these large networks on platforms like LinkedIn, because they then talk about it and they then manage to get the university's name out there in a way that wasn't possible for the university before. the The example I've seen recently is the CEO of Gymshark being given an honorary degree from Aston because he actually um, studied there for a, a period of time. Um, and he receives this, there's a whole video put together on LinkedIn by his team to make more of a thing out of it. The university's all over this, there's a ceremony and it just makes the university look more forward thinking, um, as a result. So yeah, that's an ad hoc example. That's not a regular tactic you can deploy. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, that really stands out for me as something that is a good way to use that platform. I think it connects to other types of things, though, too. Perhaps it's something you start looking at in the criteria for alumni awards or student mm. awards that are given. So honorary degrees are great. Those are people who have built audiences and they could start talking about your college. But you might have people in your college community or university community who also have built these audiences, maybe yeah. not tens of thousands, but they have an audience. And it might be something to look at about 
who are you writing stories about? Who are you giving awards to? Who are you mm -hmm. holding up at, on your campus? Because then they're likely to talk about that through their channels. Yes. Um, my university, Falmouth University, I've, I've been out of it many years now, but um, they have a fantastic alumni team who are using LinkedIn to reach out to people like myself. Um, they they discovered me via the content I was publishing. I mean, my audience is class of the micro audience. It's around two and a half thousand. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they're reaching out for me to opportunities. They're, they invited me back to talk to students about my experience of creating a content business and all of these things. And, you know, for me, this is almost where an alumni team needs to be today. And, and LinkedIn feels like that, that channel for you to really build those long-term bonds. And typically, you know, I'm, the, the alumni communications uh, that that uh, alumni receive aren't normally up to up to scratch. It's the alumni newsletter. It's a little bit um, generic, but those chances have those one to one communications and conversations in LinkedIn with um, your alumni and your your alumni team. Yeah, very powerful. And I I speak very highly of my university because of it. And if they didn't do it, I wouldn't probably be speaking about them, would they? Would I? So um, yeah, uh, they they do good stuff. So as we try to embark on this journey of leveraging LinkedIn, what are some common challenges that we should just be aware of as we're trying to use LinkedIn for more powerful things, honestly? Yeah, um, the number one uh, thing for, for me and I think for most creators is, uh, is consistency. And, and this sort of leads into another another thing as well. Um, when we say consistency, people automatically assume that's just about posting at the same time yeah. every day, and it, every day, not and, and every day, yeah. And keep yeah. and you do it over weekends and all that. That is part of it. Um, but another big part of it is keeping up the quality, uh, quality. because LinkedIn is uh, its algorithm is it's just like any other social network. But the thing is, if you have a bad day and you don't get a great post, it's not necessarily an issue but if you consistently post poor quality content you're basically telling the algorithm that you're not worth sending views to or traffic to so you kind of need to have an idea of what you want to be to be known for spend time creating your content getting it right don't necessarily just post something because you're coming down to the last minute saying that there is an element about you've got to do a bit of quantity to find out you know where the quality is you've got to work out what works but ultimately, the consistency is the thing that people fall down on because I, I, I joked at the beginning of the year on LinkedIn, right, who's, 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 who's New Year's resolution is to post every day. And, you know, if you check back in people a month later, they've usually <laughs> tailed off. Um, but, yeah, it, the number one reason these things fail, any kind of content program, is because people give up. They yeah. give up too early. Um, and the thing is with LinkedIn, it's almost like people expect great results after a few weeks. And if you look at my own statistics, my, my content, uh, any people like me who publish on these platforms, you don't normally start to see the big returns until you're probably, I don't know, probably a year, year to 18 months into that wow. process. I mean, I, I've been publishing on LinkedIn a year and it was only probably post post Christmas that I saw that curve really starting to gain momentum before that it had been growing. Um, but something's, something's clicked and now the compounding benefits are there, um, to keep that, uh, keep that momentum growing. So I'm going to keep pushing that as, as much as I can, um, because it does take a while to get that engine started. Yeah. And marketers, we know we're not always the most patient people. 
So (laughs) that's a hard one to swallow to stick with it. But you've found a way to find that consistency, not just about that you're posting often, but you are so consistent within the category of what you're talking about. And do you have any tips or tricks that you could share with the rest of us that have helped you be able to do that? Yeah, I I think the most important thing is to have a point of view. Um, Most people will have some sort of philosophy in how they approach marketing as a practice. You might not necessarily have that when you start your publishing journey, but it will definitely come to you over time. So you'll have a body of text or a body of work or a body of knowledge that you can share a perspective into fairly frequently. That's your bigger performing post because it's an area that you really know a lot about. When you have gaps in that, something I found really useful was just to take that perspective and see how it applies to other news items. So I'm an education marketer. But that doesn't mean I'm not interested in general digital media and content trends. It doesn't mean I'm not interested in like general stuff around paid advertising, but I'm always taking those recent pieces of news, data analysis from other reports, and I'm presenting it through the lens of education marketing. And if you've got that sort of content going as a real sort of baseline, then Every once in a while, you can actually put out like a super deep and long and thoughtful post about a topic that tends to do better. But yeah, if you're struggling for like something's happening in the day, the internet's this amazing thing. There's there's always something going on, right? Um, so you just look for a piece of news that's relating to your sector and then present it to people in a meaningful and accessible way. And you'll present something of value every day as a result. Thank you.